But man, I, uh, I don't know about you guys. Um, I'm not a huge fan of hearing the phrase, who knows? I don't like that phrase, who knows? Now, there's just a lot of situations in life that you're in and you ask a question and if someone says, who knows? You're just like, that's not good, that's not a good answer. Like if you're going skydiving and you say, is this parachute gonna open? And they go, who knows? That's just, it's not a good answer, is it? If you're talking to your friend, you're like, I'm gonna propose to this girl, what do you think? Think she's gonna say yes, and if he goes, who knows? You're gonna go, well, what is that supposed to mean? You know, uh, man. If you if you're talking to your coworker, and they're like, I did this thing. Do you think I'm gonna get fired? And your friend says, who knows? Right? It just creates all this insecurity in you. If some friend invites you to a concert, and they're like, it costs 50 bucks, and you're like, are there any good? And they're like, who knows? You know? Or you go into a restaurant, and you say, is it decent? And they go, who knows? Right? Who knows is a terrible response to your questions, isn't it? It just creates all this insecurity within us. I don't know about you, but I love predictability in the things that I do and the things that I eat. Um, Friday night, me and Elizabeth went on a date to our favorite dessert spot in Portland, Papa Hyden's, over on 23rd for coffee and dessert. We sat down. There were some few desserts on the menu that I've had before. They're staples for me. I'm like, this is a good thing. I know this is going to be good. And that night, last Friday night, I was like, I'm going to be really spontaneous. I'm going to live on the edge. I'm gonna order a brookie, which is a brownie cookie ice cream sandwich, okay? And I thought, you know, it's a brownie cookie ice cream sandwich, right? That's gotta be good. And it was fine, it was good, but the moment I started eating this thing, I was mad. And I told Liz, I'm like, man, I should've just got what I knew I loved, you know? And I just like, this is why I don't do anything outside of the box <laughs> of predictability. This is why I don't do this kind of stuff, you know? We like predictability. We love track record. We love banking on things that we know. That's why companies, if they've been around for any length of time, have done any well, have done well at all in business, they say, we've been doing business since 1937 or whatever have you, right? They, they'll tell you how long they've been doing business because it creates a security within you, right? You don't even like the friends that are unpredictable. You have that friend who's just unpredictable and you kind of like them and you hang out, but then you find out they're coming to hang out with you at night and there's a little bit of that like fear. You're like, what are they gonna say or what are they gonna do, right? We like predictability. We love track record. Right, with things, with people. Well, what about God? What about with God? You ever walk around and you think about God, your relationship with God, and you feel a little bit insecure? You ever feel that way? Maybe a bit fearful? Maybe wondering how God's gonna act towards you or something? That you're thinking, will he forgive me for this thing? I assume he will for that thing, but what about this thing? You know, how can I even know if he does? Now, see, right now, even uh, this month is the month of Ramadan. Uh, it's, it's a month where Muslims who fear God will fast from sunup to sundown with the hopes that they will find favor with God for doing that. And if you talk to any God-fearing Muslim and you say, do you, do you think your sins are forgiven? They'll say, who knows? Hope so, but who knows? Like, how can you know? The key verse in this short narrative here that um, Mark just read for us is the climax. That's the key verse in chapter three. And really the climax in chapter three is the climax of the whole book. It's what this whole book's been leading up to at this point. And this is kind of the, the this verse is the point of no return where everything's gonna change and, and the rest of the book is gonna be very different because of this. And it's verse nine. That's the key verse in this passage. What do the people say? They say, who knows? 
God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. But hey, who knows, right, who knows? So we've been waiting since chapter one, verse one, to see what God is gonna do with the Ninevites. They're performing outward expressions of repentance here, wondering if God's gonna act toward them in a certain way. And today, guys, we find out. We find out. And we discover this morning that God is more able, God is more willing to save than we could ever hope or dream. That's what we see here, that God is more able and willing to save than we could ever hope or dream. It's a really short story. The outline for you be on the screen if, if that's something you enjoy following along with. We just see God's message, the people's response, and God's action. I'm just going to walk through it and then to say, what does this mean for you today? So the first thing we see here is God's message in verses 1 through 4. It says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So God has got a message for Nineveh. It's the same message we got in chapter one, and he's gonna use his people to get that message out. And notice here how well this mirrors chapter one, because God says to Jonah a second time, arise, go to Nineveh. And Jonah arose, and he went to Nineveh. And we're like, whew, good job, right? Like, no more storms, no more giant fish seem to be in our future, right? Jonah is actually doing something, right? He's doing what he's supposed to be doing. And so Jonah goes to Nineveh, and he walks about it for a day, and then he announces this message, which is only a five-word sentence in Hebrew. It's a simple, short message, and he just goes around the city, probably to many, many places, and he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. We read that and we're like, whoo, wow. What a moving message, you know? How beautiful, how compelling. That should be like a TED Talk, right? The shortest TED Talk ever. And everyone would stand and applaud, right? Wow, what a moving message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. See, guys, this is what Jonah was enthusiastically wanting. He wanted them to be overthrown, Right? This is, this is a difficult thing, I think, for us to understand. I mean, because we would probably go into a place like Nineveh, and if you're here week one, um, I talked about how terrible of a place Nineveh was and how uh, just abusive they were of people and oppressive and all the terrible things they would do, and I promised many of you I would never describe that for you again because it was her- terrible for you, right? But, but they were just a terrible place. And so, uh, man, it's difficult for us because I think we would probably go into a place like Nineveh and we would think, I just need to go in there and try to reform their social structures, you know, I'm just going to help advocate for fighting systemic injustices or something. Or, or maybe we would go in there and we would just want to go and preach God's saving grace for them if they just turn to God, you know? But Jonah here, I imagine based upon chapter one, is enjoying this. He's like preaching God's wrath. He's just like, yeah, you got 40 days to live, people, and this stuff's going down. And so what we see here is an obedient prophet He's actually hoping that the people aren't phased by the message, and you discover that next week when we, we get to chapter four. But it's within this five-word Hebrew message that a thematic play on words is introduced into this short story. Again, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. This word overthrown literally is the word to turn or to turn over. That's literally the word. And they are told that they will be turned, okay? But then we see this word come up again in verse eight. 
Let everyone turn from his evil way. Verse 9, who knows? Maybe God will turn and turn from his fierce anger. Verse 10, then God saw what they did, how they turned. Right? So turn, turn, turn. Right? There's a song like that, I think, right? There's a promise here that they will be turned, that they will be turned over, not by themselves, but by God. That's a, that's a promise. It's like an announcement. It's a message. There's no promise here of an alternative reality. Right? There's just a message of judgment. These people aren't told anything about God. They aren't told God loves them, has a great plan for their life. They aren't told that God wants their best life for them right now. They aren't told they have a hole in their heart that only God can satisfy, so just turn to God and be satisfied. They aren't told any of these things. They're told, hey, you got 40 days, right? This isn't gospel. This is judgment. That's what it is. Well, how are they going to respond? How would you respond? You got 40 days. What are you going to do? Verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent, and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. Well, what's the response from these people from this awesome TED Talk, right? The people believed God, right? It didn't say they believed Jonah, right? They believed God. They understood that this word wasn't from Jonah. This word was from God. So Jonah speaks a simple word, and it cuts through the density of their sin. In their society, it cuts through the heart of these brutal people who were enemies of God's people, Israel, and they believe God's word. They're told you have 40 days to live. Again, what would you do with 40 days? Well, how do these people respond to the announcement they have 40 days to live? They're call, they call for a fast, they put on sackcloth, and the king we see sits in ashes, right? So they're they're fasting, they're putting on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them, right? So from the wealthiest people to the poorest people, right? To the, to the most significant people in society to the least significant people in society, from the farmers to the professors, right? From the senators to the beggar at the grocery store, right? From the person who lives in a trailer park to the person who lives at the top of Timber Hill, right? From, from the blazer fan to the warrior fan, right? From the least to the greatest, okay? What's happening? Revival, right? Everything is being turned over, right? The whole, everybody, no one's exempt from this. Well, what are they doing? They're fasting, they're denying themselves of food. Sackcloth, which is what they're putting on, it's, it's a coarse material made of goat hair. Sackcloth was mainly worn as a token, as a way to mourn. It was a sign or a symbol of submission or a symbol of grief and humiliation, Ashes, sitting them in them, was a symbol of death, right? So sitting in ashes is symbolically identifying with your sin and your mortality. That's what that represents. So what do we do with this? Well, at the end of this message, I'm going to give you a chance to put on sackcloth and, sit, sackcloth and sit in ashes, you know, that kind of thing. So that's what we're going to do today, okay? Um, just kidding, obviously, right? This isn't, this isn't just the fashion that God prefers, okay? That's not what this is getting at. So what's happening here? Well, guys, in these ripped clothes, in these outward expressions, 
They're reflecting an inner torment of the heart. And these folks are doing outward things that Israelites would do to show their fear and mourning over the spoken word to them. They're trying to express outwardly what they're feeling inwardly. That's what's happening here. So the people are doing this. The people are doing this. Then the word comes to the king. And notice that this revival starts from the bottom. It doesn't start from the top. Like most of these things would happen. Realize, too, that this would have been a pretty offensive, you'd think, uh, thing to happen once it reached the king of the year. It would be very offensive to this king because it would show that something or someone other than the king had authority and power over the people because the people are acting in a very specific way contrary to the king and it didn't come from his mouth. So what does the king do? Does he get mad? Does he start doing brutal things to them? No, the king stands up, removes his robe, covers himself with sackcloth, and sits in ashes. This revival really is from the least to the greatest. It's everybody. This is such a remarkable feature in the story because prophecy was not a strange thing to the Ninevites. Prophecy was pretty common in the ancient Near East. Even a prophet coming from another nation and giving a word of prophecy to those people would be pretty common. And so a, a nation like Assyria... This would be very common to them. They, they, w- they would welcome this idea. But what's really rare is that prophets always served as official or unofficial advisors to the king, and so their messages were always really complimentary to what the king wanted to do. The, 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 uh, they, their messages were always affirming the king's actions. They were affirming his decisions. They were affirming his policies. But this one obviously isn't. Right, so this word from Jonah, it contradicts the king's actions and decisions and policies but it's not done, right? The king makes a decree. He even tells the animals they have to fast, right? Animals can't eat or drink anything. I mean, man and beast, you might say, what did the cows do wrong, you know? Well, probably nothing, right? But you know what a cow does when it's hungry? You heard a cow when it's hungry? What does it do? It moves, right? It moves. That's what it does. Have you ever heard a group of cows mooing together that are hungry? It's pretty loud. Right? None of you heard this before. You should go to a pasture today and I don't know, maybe they'll move. Okay? It's loud, but it contributes to this atmosphere of mourning. But even if that's not the reason, the, the response that the king made the animals fast, it could also just be in expressing the Ninevites' lack of understanding of Israel's God. They might just be worried that the animals themselves might offend God. So let's just include them in this whole thing so that we have our best chances of how God's going to respond to us. But verse 8, guys, we, we see the heart of this message. Uh, the king says, let them call out mightily to God. Let everybody call out mightily to God. See, up until now, these people have boasted in being mighty. Right? They, they, they were mighty in their army. They were mighty in their strength. They were mighty in their riches. But now they are mighty in their humiliation. And it's striking. This turning is specifically being called out. Verse 8, it says, Turn from your evil way and from the violence in your hands. See, repentance is always specific. And this isn't just a national violence. This is a, this is a personal violence from the violence in your hands. This is a specific repentance that's going on here. Uh, Jacques Elul, who's a commentator, I'll put this one on the screen for you. He said, Nineveh, with its holy warlike orientation, accuses itself of violence. Nineveh, proud of its power and invincibility, ceases to be itself when it thus humbles itself. 
He's saying in their humiliation, they're literally ceasing to be itself. What they're known for, how they act, what they do, that's what this is, hap- this is, what this is contributing uh, to the society from their repentance. So with one simple word from God, the entire city is changing. Now remember the message, Nineveh will be overthrown. It's gonna be turned over, and it's being turned over, but not in the way that it's described it will be. It's almost like they have this opportunity, like you and me even. Turn or be turned. Turn or be turned. But are they really turning? Do you think they're really turning? Are they really repenting? I'm not sure if you've noticed, but why does the narrator change for the very first time in this whole book the title of God here? This whole book, if you noticed it, up until the people start talking in response, the only name for God being used is the name Yahweh. It's, it's all caps in English, uh, the word Lord in your Bible. It's the covenant name of God, meaning this is, my, this is who I am in relationship with you. Our relationship, it's a covenant name. But here when these people are repenting, they just use the generic name Elohim, right? That's, what the, that's the word that they use. Which is interesting because Assyria is a polytheistic nation. They have like a pantheon of gods. And here, someone comes saying, God's gonna turn them over. And it's as if they're saying, well, we don't want that to happen. Let's add this God to our pantheon of gods. And he's probably mad at our violence. So let's stop doing that. And maybe we'll appease this God. It's a very different thing because in the first chapter, you see the mariners, right? The, The sailors, when they throw Jonah overboard, and the storm ceases, what do they do? They call upon not Elohim, God, they call upon Yahweh, the covenant name for God. They enter into a covenant relationship, if you will, with God by calling upon his name and making the sacrifice to him. But here in Nineveh, we don't see residents forsaking their gods. We don't see residents forsaking their idols. They are turning, but they're not turning from their gods. They're turning from their violent behavior. They feel bad about it. They're fearful for the consequences of it. And so they're hoping that if they repent from the violence, that they're going to be spared. They're repenting from the behavior, not their God. Guys, changing social behavior is not sufficient for salvation. It's just not. And I think we do this a lot. We often think that we're really repenting, that we're really turning. What we're doing is there's something in our life that we do that we know is wrong, that it's damaging, that we hate. We're like, I'm tired of doing that thing, I'm gonna stop doing that thing. I repent of that thing. But a lot of times we don't really repent of the thing, we're not repenting of our God, as if we've made something else our God. Turning to our one true God, we're repenting of a thing. They're repenting of a thing, not of their God. And this would be absolute failure to understand what we need to be saved from, if that's what they're doing. It would be an absolute failure of understanding what we need to be saved from, if that's what we're doing. We don't need to be saved merely from death. We don't need to be saved merely from being ruined or turned over. We need to be saved from God. I think a lot of times we talk about how we're saved by God, which is absolutely true in the gospel. We need to be saved from God. That's what these people need to be saved from, God, right? Not just mere ruin. See, God isn't after a mere outward repentance. He's after an inward repentance that leads to an outward repentance. That's what God's after. 
I think a great example of this is the amazing, um, comes to us from the amazing Oscar-nominated uh, winning film from 1992. Um, had a huge cast, it was amazing. It won a few Oscars, got nominated for others. It starred Robin Williams, the great Gilbert Godfrey. Um, it's the movie Aladdin, right? You don't know if you've heard the movie Aladdin before. It's a great film. Um, Aladdin's the main character in this film. He's a street rat, right? That's what the song says. He's a street rat in the film. He steals bread with his little buddy, Abu the monkey, okay? What happens? He sees Princess Jasmine. He wants to fall in love and be wed to Jasmine. So what does he think? I need to become a prince. So he stumbles across a lamp, okay? An incredible genie. And the genie can make him a prince, right? On the outside. He, he can make him appear to be a prince. And so he kind of gets to fall in love with Jasmine. I don't want to ruin the story for you. I heard it's coming out here in a few weeks. So go see it, okay? Um, it's an incredible film. Um, but nonetheless, uh, he's a, a prince on the outside. He looks the part, right? His outward behavior is such that he can trick her in thinking he's a prince. But we all know, okay, without trying to ruin it too much for you, inside, he's still a street rat, isn't he? Isn't he? He's not a prince on the inside. So the idea is this, go on, go on, put on the sackcloth, wail, right? Look the part. But true turning is first an inward turning. It's an inward thing. It's a changing your mind of who God is in your life. And that'll manifest itself in an outward thing. It's like the, it's like the classic example. Like if I had a, a mug up here with coffee in it, and I shook the mug and coffee went everywhere, I would ask you philosophically, why did coffee fall out of the mug? You know, and you would say, because you shook it. And I would say, no, coffee was in the mug. That's why coffee came out of the mug. It's a classic example, right? It was the circumstances that shook the mug, yes, but the only reason coffee came out is because coffee was in it. If water was in there, water would come out. If nothing was in there, nothing would come out of there, right? The outward circumstances and behavior shows what's on the inside. So I don't just need outward change. I need inward change. That's the real turning we need. So we get down to verse 9 again. What's their hope? in their outward turning. Who knows? Let's just try it. Let's see if God's having a good day. Maybe God will turn and relent, turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. See, they have a hope in their turning, but they're not promised anything. They're just crossing their fingers. That's what they're doing. See, there, there's a fundamental problem with anyone who knows God in any way, the God of the Bible, it's that our, our repentance doesn't save us. Our repentance doesn't save us. It's God that saves us. It's God's action that we need. That's why Jonah cries out from the belly of the fish, salvation belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to me. I don't just get to do a few things and I'm saved. Salvation belongs to God. God's the one who does it. So what's God going to do? What's God going to do? Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Whew, yeah. See, God doesn't owe Nineveh anything, and God doesn't owe me anything. What their sins had earned them, what they were owed was judgment. God doesn't owe them mercy even in their repenting. 
But God, in his mercy, relents from his threat to destroy the city. What a merciful God. Again, salvation belongs to the Lord. Their repenting didn't make God owe them anything. Don't be fooled. God isn't being coerced here. God acts according to his wisdom and character. And so you might read verse 10, you're like, well, what is this? Is God like being counseled by these people? Is God like, okay, whew, I was close. But man, since you did that, all right, not today. You know, is that what's happening here? How, how does this happen? How does God relent or turn from his ways? Is God like a, a big bully in the sky that gets fired up and we gotta calm him down, you know? With, it, with our actions, we're just trying to calm God down. Is, is he that unpredictable from day to day? Is that our God? Do we just cross our fingers and say, who knows? Is he having a good day or a bad day? Flip a coin, let's see. You know, Calvin uh, says that God talks to us in baby talk. That's what Calvin says. I think it's helpful. He says, quote, as a mother stoops to talk to a child, so God speaks to us in such terms that we may grasp his truth. All right, what, he, what he's getting at is the Bible speaks to us about God and his relations with us in anthropomorphic language. Oftentimes it ascribes to God in trying to help us understand what God is doing and, and how he's acting in our life, it ascribes to God human emotions and passions and actions. And so the narrator here is actually using anthropomorphic language to help us understand what seems to be going on here because Nineveh deserves judgment. That's what God has promised them, but God decides not to give it to them now. But he isn't saying that he isn't going to judge them. He's delaying his judgment, right? This doesn't make God mean Contrary to what we often feel when we read ideas about God bringing judgment on us in the Bible, we often think, well, that just sounds mean, but it's not, he's, got, he's not being mean, and you know that this isn't mean. You know that this is normal and right. You want to know how I know? Have you ever driven down I-5 before? Ever? In the fast lane? You're going 72, 73 because you were told you can go that fast and not be pulled over, right? You're doing fine. Someone comes up behind you, low rider car, you know, they're riding your tail. You're like, well, I'm not gonna speed to get in the other lane, so you have to wait. You get over and they just blow by you really fast. How do you feel when that happens? Just curious. You go, oh, that person's nice. Is that what you think? <laughs> right? You're like, man, I hate that, right? Or something. And then what, do you, what happens? If you're, is this what happened to you? Cold miles down the road? You see those uh, the police lights going off? You're like, oh man, I hope, I hope it's not that guy. No, I hope it's not him, <laughs> right? And you, have you ever happened where you actually see them? They got pulled over. What do you do? Do you go, oh, that's so sad, right? Oh, I really hope they don't give him a ticket. I hope they let him go, <laughs> right? No, you're like, I hope they lay it on him, right? <laughs> I just hope they give it to him. Don't you? Don't you? Yeah. But when that's you, when you get pulled over, what do you think? What do you think? You're like, oh, no, I, I'm sorry, I was just, you know. You have good reasons, though, don't you? That guy, he's just a jerk, isn't he? <laughs> right, this is how we function, right? It's exactly how we function. We want justice. We want judgment. Because we are made in the image of God, and God is just. We know that wrongs need to be righted. You know what? That just puts me in a really bad spot. It does, because... All of my unjust actions and rebellion against God caused me to stand before him in sackcloth and ashes, realizing he doesn't owe me anything, anything but judgment. 
He doesn't owe me anything good in response to all I've done. Well, shoot. Am I just stuck in verse 9? Who knows? Maybe God has a good day, right? Well, not if you keep reading your Bibles. Because you arrive in a spot where you see Jesus, the better prophet from God, he comes, right? But he doesn't come delivering a word of judgment from his father, does he? No, but delivering a word of good news. That's what he says he's delivering. Gospel of the kingdom, good news, right? He's preaching this thing everywhere, everywhere he goes. Well, how could Jesus have good news and not judgment? Was he just nicer than Jonah? Is that how we're supposed to understand that? We're like, yeah, Jonah was just, he was just a jerk. He was jaded prophet. You know, he had bad, he had bad, you know, words to say. But Jesus was nice, you know? That's why he had good news to say. Well, no, not at all, right? Guys, guys, the reason why Jesus had come proclaiming good news is because God's justice was coming and it has come. It's rained down on another man who was born a king, just like this king here in Nineveh. But this king of Nineveh should have had it coming, but he didn't get it, did he? He didn't get it. God relented. But when God sent his son Jesus, the king of the universe, into the world, he didn't relent, but poured out his judgment on him instead. Even though Jesus hadn't racked up a penny of wrongs that would require justice to rain down on him. Not at all. And he swallowed up every last drop of God's wrath towards our sin. In other words, Jesus endured what the Ninevites and you and I didn't. Jesus endured what they had coming to them in verse 9. That's what Jesus endured. And now, now, we don't have a blind hope to the question, who knows? We have a, a real hope in the face of the who knows question. We have a guaranteed hope that if we turn we will be saved because God didn't turn from Jesus as he hung on the cross. See, God relents from judgment on you because he didn't relent on Jesus for you. And so now if you turn and you put your faith in Jesus, the only thing God can relentlessly offer you is grace. That's the only thing he can relentlessly offer you is grace. If you turn to Jesus, if you actually turn, if you truly turn, that's why First uh, John 1, 9 says what? If we confess our sins, he is faithful. He's predictable. Right? He's, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Those who turn to Jesus don't have to ask the question, will he relent, right? Will he relent from judgment? You know the answer. And the answer will make you tremble with awe. That's what the answer will do to you because you are called to once again look and live, to see and consider that because he didn't relent in judging Jesus in your place, he won't relent on dishing out grace towards you. God is a relentless God, a relentless God of grace. Do you see that? Elias uh, Martinez painted a very standard and rather unremarkable picture of Jesus uh, with a crown of thorns. It was entitled Eche Homo. It means behold the man. I have a picture for you here. There it is. It's beautiful, right? Okay. So 1930. As a painting, it was a standard piece typical of most Catholic paintings, okay? It was rather neither ordinary or extraordinary. 
but since this was from 1930, it deteriorated over the years, and the church that it was in in Spain finally decided that it was time to restore it. And so they had it painted over and restored, and when they discovered the restoration of the painting, they thought it had been vandalized, right? And so this is what the restoration looked like, right? You guys seen this before? It's pretty, pretty sweet, isn't it? Let's see the side-by-side. Side. The side-by-side, side. look at that. Whew, okay, here we go. All right, this classic painting now resembled, according to professional art critics, a, quote, crayon stretch, sketch of a very hairy monkey in an ill-fitting tunic. And it's been dubbed now the Ecce Mono, Behold the Monkey, okay? So what was sad about this whole ordeal was that it wasn't vandalized, but rather this was an attempt of restoration made by an elderly lady, okay? And so this woman, she was like in her 80s, and this is her first attempt ever at restoring art, you know? Why not start a new hobby, you know, when you're doing something like this, okay? But like all wonderful things, Right, the internet took this and made it wonderful sensation, right? It ended up on the Mona Lisa, on Campbell's soup cans, as Halloween costumes, as avatars and people's social media profiles, right? It is really remarkable though, when you see stuff like this, to see what happens when something that is beautiful ends up becoming repulsive. Because what do we usually do with it? Right, we toss it, we get rid of it, we hide it. So we do. And after this restoration, this botched restoration, it became a matter of this church to talk about kind of putting it away and just trying to hide it altogether, just we should get rid of it. But something really surprising happened, okay? In this small city in Borgia, Spain, there was like 5,000 people that lived there, people started to come to see this botched restoration from all over. And they came out in droves, all right? They had an influx of over 70,000 tourists a year and it's actually resurrected the, the local economy there. So, so nearby vineyards are squabbling over rights to splash this image on their wine labels. This lady's smudgy rendering is now held up as a profound pop icon of art, and now she hands out prizes even as competition, right, for young artists who paint their own Ecce Homo portraits, right? The image is stamped on the town's lottery tickets. Okay, it's crazy, right? This, this portrait also plays a big part in a popular Spanish movie with a couple of thieves that are trying to steal this thing. And an opera is actually in the works about this whole incident. And it's about the story, I guess, of a woman who ruined a fresco and saved a town, okay? Maybe it'll be the next Hamilton, we'll see, okay? Who knows, right? But the story of Ecce Homo is a remarkable story, isn't it? That a picture of Jesus disfigured, repulsive, in a mockery would lead to the salvation of so many. It completely turned the town upside down, didn't it? And isn't that the gospel, isn't it? Isn't that the gospel? That Jesus goes through verse nine, disfigured, we botch our lives, stand helpless before God, and a disfigured Jesus brings about an entire renewal to a whole mass of people. I said this on week one of the series. When we read narrative, we always attach ourselves in identifying with the character in the story, don't we? Most of the time we identify with the hero, but if we prayerfully look at these stories and ask God to show us who we are, we're gonna at times resonate with Jonah, you probably will in a couple weeks, but we will also resonate with Nineveh, this is a story about Nineveh here. Jonah's not really even in the story much. 
And so here's the thing, guys. If Nineveh was such a wicked nation that would brutally kill and mistreat people, and if God would be merciful to them, then this means for you, there really is no pit that you could fall into. There's no distance that you could run. There's nothing that you could do or not do that would put you in a place that's beyond the reach of God's merciful hand in your life. Again, if I botched my life, Jesus steps in. If I want to cover things up, if I want to keep it hidden, if I can uncover those things, if God, if I allow God to uncover those things, transformation begins to take place. So what is it that you've buried deep? What's the thing that brings you the most shame? Maybe it's something that you've let identify you or it's a sin that's shaped you. Like there's a lot of things that, that you would probably confess to God and go, yeah, of course he were lent of that, right? But, but not that. You're sitting here right now and you're like, man, if that were broadcast in this room, I would run out of here. I may not know what it is. The person you're sitting next to may not know what it is, but God knows what it is. And because of that, you sit here and you wonder like the Ninevites, will he relent? You're still hanging out in verse nine like the Ninevites. You're like, probably not for that thing. But look at Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look and live. And see that God didn't relent when he poured out his wrath on Jesus because of that sin or that shame that you cover. God didn't relent on Jesus so that this morning he wouldn't relent in showering you with mercy. See, you and I are Nineveh. We're the godless people seeking our own way apart from God, and yet we find mercy from God not in our repenting, but at the foot of the cross of Jesus because it's there that we see God's loving mercy and justice meet. That's why Paul says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not our repentance that leads to God's kindness. Again, the city in Spain was turned upside down from a disfigured image of Jesus. And this city is turned upside down at the mere hope of God's mercy, just the hope of it. What do you think is possible? When you look at the cross and you see God is more able to do and he's more willing to save than we could ever dare dream. What do you think is possible? What do you think is possible? That's, that's a great who knows question. That's a great one. Who knows? And that's a great question because Jesus has satisfied the who knows question in verse nine. We know. So we look and live. We look and live. I botched my life. I did. And Jesus stepped in. And he brings about not a revival on the outside, but a revival on the inside that'll manifest itself on the outside. Let's all stand together as we go into a time of response where we come to this table week in and week out as believers and we take the bread and the cup remembering the sacrifice of Jesus for us. And guys, this morning when we come, we remember that Jesus endured verse nine so that we could have the guarantee of verse 10. 
when you take the elements this morning, that's what you're celebrating. That's what you're doing. Jesus went through verse 9 so I could have verse 10. So now I have God. And if you don't have that faith in Jesus, I invite you to come and talk to me this morning. So that invitation's open to you as well. Let me pray as we go into our time. Lord Jesus, this morning, um, I do pray that we would identify ourselves with Nineveh and see your gracious mercy towards us in the cross. God, we thank you for this story. God, we thank you for your gospel. God, that you offer us good news this morning, not just a word of judgment, God, but you offer us a word of grace. And I pray, Lord, that that would land on our ears and on a tender heart this morning in a way that maybe it hasn't landed in a long time. God, would you bring people home to you? God, would you encourage those who are feeling weary? God, for those who don't know you, I pray that, that they would come to the saving knowledge of you this morning. God, would you do a mighty work in our lives that we couldn't do? God, would you, would you turn our church upside down? God, would you turn our city upside down, Lord, with an awakening to the reality of who you are, God, and what you've done for us? We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.